Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. The message for this week is from our current verse-by-verse study from the book of James. In each message, we will see some practical truths for living God's way in situations and circumstances that are often out of our control. As always, we would love to have you join us for a Sunday service sometime here soon in Vancouver. You can find directions, more info, and more sermons on our website at citybaptist.ca. Well, um, we had a great time at the men's retreat. We just got back yesterday, and uh, a few guys from our church that went. Um, It was a real blessing, and uh, the Lord really spoke to us through the preaching. And again, I know I say this every time, but whenever we have opportunities for retreats and stuff, if you guys can make make it to be there, um, it's really, really great. It really makes a difference. And I know it's a sacrifice. I know it's a sacrifice maybe a day off or sacrifice of, of some extra time or, or maybe a sacrifice on the wife's ha- behalf. I get that when we have kids, you know. And uh, Jeanette's just like, I'm sacrificing for you. And so I gave her $50 and we're all good now. Uh, you know, maybe you just need to pay your wife an hourly wage while you're at the retreat, but it's, it's worth it uh, <laughs> because it helps you be a better husband. I've got to tell you what, guys, man, we are challenged to be better husbands and better leaders, and those are all things that our wives would gladly want us to hear, I'll tell you that. And I'm, I've been so good since I got back. We've just been getting along really well, and I've been kind and thoughtful and all sorts of things. I'm just, don't verify that. I'm just kidding. But uh, anyway, it's good. We had a good time. Well, I'm excited to start this new series. Now, the book of James is, is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I know I say that about every book of the Bible, but it, it really is one of my favorite ones because it is so intensely practical. I'm a practical kind of person. I have a hard time sometimes sorting through things in my mind. I like things to just be very clear, right? Very practical, very upfront, right to the point so I understand exactly what is going on. And that's what the book of James is really like. It's very practical. Now, some people, I'll just give you a bit of overview of the book. Some people do take a little bit of, um, I I guess you would call issue with the book, possibly, because the book of James is not a very high theological book. It's not a book that talks a lot about theological truths. It doesn't emphasize so much. In fact, at all, it doesn't emphasize the crucifixion or the resurrection, unlike all of the other epistles. Uh, And it doesn't emphasize any of the other major doctrines of Christ. But through it, we see James definitely have doctrinal reflections. And in fact, he also connects it a lot to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. But his main focus in the book is to emphasize uh, and have a strong focus on the teachings of Christ. While he doesn't necessarily talk about some of the doctrines of Christ, he emphasizes what Jesus had already talked about. He emphasized how we are to live those things out in our daily lives. If there was to be a theme verse For the entire book of James, I think it would be James chapter 1 and verse 22 that tells us to be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. How many of you have heard that verse before? All right, I I quote that verse all the time because it's such a strong verse to be hearers of the word, or sorry, to be doers of the word, and we have to get it right, be doers of the word and not hearers only. And so as we begin this morning in the first verse of James, we're going to go through a little bit of an introduction just to get us started on the series so that I don't have to keep coming back to it every sermon. Uh, But I want to talk about, first of all, the writer, his position, and his audience. The writer, his position, and his audience, just to give us a bit of background for the book. So we're going to look at uh, now uh, some practical aspects. Like I mentioned, it's a very practical book. Now, last night, I had uh, the opportunity to put together a toy for Royal. 
Now, you parents, you know how fun it is to put together toys for your kids, right? Uh, Jeanette, while I was gone, she went and she bought Royal a toy with his Christmas money that he didn't even know he had, and she bought him a, a toy with that money. We made that decision for him. But as I was putting it together, uh, and the older boys helped me out with it, one of the things I was thankful for is that inside that box, as you pull out, you know, 50 different parts, inside that box was a nice manual with all of the instructions, and it had pictures. So that was really good for me. I needed those pictures to see, and, and it had all of those things and those step-by-step instructions. Because I've learned over the years, don't just wing it when it comes to your kids' toys. Otherwise, there might be some danger involved as they're jumping on it or playing with it. You want to make sure that you get it right. And so we worked through those instructions, and it was step-by-step. And that's how the book of James is. Just like an owner's manual uh, to your vehicle or something else, the book of James is an instructional manual for life. But instead of having to kind of flip through the pages, we can just go to the book of James and see some step-by-step instructions for how we can live the Christian life. God just sort of puts it out there for us and says, if you do this, if you follow this, this is how you're going to have joy. This is how you're going to have peace. This is how you have contentment. This is how you're going to um, find meaning for your life. And so we begin in James chapter 1, in verse number 1, where it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. To the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad, greeting. Now, I'll just give you a little thing real quickly about the word greeting there. Yes, he is giving them a greeting, but interestingly enough, that word greeting also is translated in other places, rejoice. And so he's saying to them, he says, I'm James, I'm the servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm writing to the 12 tribes here that are Uh, dispersed that are scattered abroad and he says I want you just to rejoice in what I'm going to say now we'll look at it in just a minute but he starts here in the book by telling us who he is he says my name is James that's probably a good thing when you're writing to people you don't know hello my name is James sometimes I find it funny you ever write an email maybe for uh, uh just for whatever reason for work and you introduce yourself in the email I always feel weird doing that you know it's like hello my name is Paul Connor and I I just feel kind of weird because that's normally something you do on the phone or in person but he's that's what he's doing he says hey this is James and I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ now which James is it that's a good question right Because there's three different James that are mentioned in Scripture. There is James, who is the brother of John, who was a son of Zebedee. I've joked before, but he was the first Jay-Z, right? James, the son of Zebedee. That's a good joke, I think. But uh, James, the son of Zebedee, (laughs) some of you don't get it, and that's totally okay. Uh, But he was James. His brother was John. He was the one uh, who, remember, their mother kind of intervened in uh, in Jesus and was like, hey, is it cool if my sons could have a spot with you, you know, up in heaven? And and Jesus says, not mine to give. And and so there's that James. He was an apostle, a disciple. But then there was another James who was a disciple of Jesus, and his name was James, the son of Alpheus. That's how we would determine him in scripture. How many of you have multiple people with the same name in your life? Yeah. I mean, at a time, I think we had three different Johns in our church, you know, and we always identify, you know, cop John, RCMP John, John, you know, (laughs) regular John. No, I don't know. John Cruz. And and we kind of identify, you know, different people. And and, and, uh, sometimes we have nicknames to identify, but there was James, the son of Alpheus. They would often, I don't know, I don't know what they called them, J.A. or something. He was also known as James the Less, which is, I don't know if I would like that nickname, but he was called James the Less. But we're not talking about either of those James. So this James was not James the, uh, the, the brother of John. He was not James uh, the son of Alphaeus, both of them disciples. He wasn't either of them. This book was written by James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. You say, why is he a half-brother? Well, we'll talk about that another time. You can think about that in a minute. 
They had different fathers, right? (laughs) Same mother, different fathers. But it's James, the brother of Jesus Christ, who wrote this epistle. Now, this is rather special. And I'll tell you why it's special. It is special because during the ministry of Jesus Christ, his family, especially his brothers, didn't really believe he was who he said he was. Now, imagine that for a minute. His own brother... And some of his sisters, the Bible tells us he had four brothers. He had uh, some sisters as well. But his own family did not believe that he was the promised Messiah. And all of the evidence that we have going through Scripture and looking at references to James and his other family, we see that he did not think that his brother was a son of God. Now, I understand that's a little bit natural, right? If your brother came to you and like, I just want you to know that I'm the son of God. You know, I'm the promised Messiah. Probably as his brother, you would doubt that a little bit, right? Because you know that. You know him. Maybe he struggled with that growing up. Um, but what's so interesting is that eventually... It came to the time where Jesus was talking, he was doing his ministry, and his family even came to seize him to essentially lock him up because of what he was saying. And so that's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty uh, uh, big thing to understand there about his family. But at the time of Christ's death, James' attitude drastically changed. It was not until Christ died on the cross and he was resurrected that James' attitude changed toward him dramatically dramatically he went from my brother needs to be institutionalized to my brother is God he is the son of God and I'm all in so that's the backstory to who the author is and I find that just very interesting to me what it shows us is that while it took all of that time for him to come to a belief in Jesus Christ when that time came you knew he was all in you knew he was in it a hundred percent But here he says, he just says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that there's no name dropping. (laughs) There's no, uh, there's no reference at all. He's like, hey, it's me, James. You might know my brother. (laughs) He doesn't say that at all. He says that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, servant, here is the word doulos, the Greek word doulos, and it means a slave is what it means. Someone who has either voluntary or involuntarily been put into a position of complete servitude. What he is saying here is that he is someone who is in complete servitude of God. Not because it's a mandatory part of being a Christian, but because Christ's love constrains us to live a life for him. You've got to remember, Jesus willingly gave his life for us, didn't he? He willingly gave his life for us. And so we certainly as believers today should give our lives to serve him while we're here on this earth. And so James, once he was confronted with the truth about his brother, he repented. He became a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know he didn't just become a follower. He became a leader of others who were following Jesus Christ. He uh, became the senior pastor, if you want to call it that. He became the senior pastor of that first church there in Jerusalem. He moved his way up, and as people saw in him a real passion for the lost, and they saw in him a passion to lead others, and they saw the fact that he had a really good insight into the life of Christ, uh, he was kind of moved up in leadership. Eventually, the Apostle Paul even called James a pillar of the church. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, that's talking about the church in Jerusalem, He said, they were pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. And so he became a pillar of the church right there in Jerusalem. 
But then it says that it is written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So he says, my name is James. I'm a servant of God. But I'm writing this specifically to the 12 tribes that were scattered abroad. This is an expression simply to uh, say that he is speaking to the Jewish people as a whole. By this time in Israel's uh, history, many people did not really know what tribe they were from. A lot of that became lost over the years, and, and so many of them wouldn't have been able to trace their family history. Many had forgotten which particular tribe was theirs, and so when he speaks to them and he calls them the 12 tribes, he's talking to all, uh, all Jews, but then specifically notice how he says here, to those that were scattered abroad. It's the word dis, uh, diaspora, which means dispersed. And what he's talking about is Jews who were spread out, who were scattered abroad outside of physical Israel, many of them scattered abroad because of persecution that had come to the early church. James' intended audience was, were Jewish Christians that were scattered, but of course today as we look at it, we understand that the book has very specific promises and very specific application to us as Christians today as well. Now, James is a book of action, like I mentioned. It's, it's just all of these things. We say it, uh, or he gives us lots of different instructions, and it's a book of action. And uh, what is so interesting to me is that unlike the other epistles, James wastes no time getting to the point. He doesn't waste any time at all getting to the point. He just says, um, he just says let's get right to it. And so what we're going to see is that in 108 verses, there's 53 direct commands. In 108 verses, there's 53 direct commands, which shows us James' intention to point us to a life in active living and working faith. This book was the first New Testament book that was completed in AD 50. And that was interesting. AD 50, this book was completed. It's the very first book uh, in the New Testament that was completed. Well, after his verse of greeting here, he immediately gets into two commands to follow when facing life's trials. And he encourages us to face life's trials with a very unique aspect. And the unique aspect that he encourages us to face them with is found in the term joy. Joy. Let's look at verse number two. He says, my brethren, I want you to read this verse with me, okay? James chapter one and verse number two. It, uh, there we go. Let's read it together. Ready? My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. He says that we are to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The first thing I want to point out this morning, point number one, is that we need to see here our response to trials our response to trials the greek word that is translated here temptations refers to a testing of the believer now depending on the context of its youth the use this word that we see here temptations can refer to either an internal temptation so a temptation to sin temptation to uh, live outside of the law of god or it can refer to an external trial so an inward temptation or an external trial in verse number 13 of chapter number one which we're not getting to today but it talks specifically about the idea of internal temptation so things that lead us uh, to sin things that uh, lead us to uh, breaking the law of god now in verse number two the context is all about trials that come our way 
So that's what he's talking about here. He says, talking about trials, things that come. He calls it the trying of your faith in verse number three. So he says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Here's the truth today, and I think you understand this. Trials are for everyone. Isn't that a blessing? <laughs> trials are for everyone. There's no one who is exempt from trials. Doesn't matter how much money you've got, uh, how smart you are, no matter where you're from or, where you, or, or what your education is, trials are for everyone. So when it comes to having difficulty, we're all on the same we're all in the same plane there, and it is inevitable that trials will come. If you've never experienced trials in your life, I'm just going to tell you right now, they're coming. Trials will be coming. In uh, Job chapter number 5 and verse number 7, it says, Yet man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Now, we were at the camp this week, and we were watching a big fire burning. We were hanging out there, and I was watching all of those embers go up into the branches of the tree right above us, and I was thinking to myself, this isn't very safe. Uh, but in the meantime, you see all those sparks going, you know, and so what happens when you see sparks and when a log shifts and sparks go in the air? That's kind of like trouble. It just is just continually. It's just going to be coming. There's always going to be trouble. Job tells us that a man is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. In 2 Timothy chapter number 3 and verse number 12, it says, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. What that tells us is that if you're born again, it does not exempt you from trials in your life. Just because you're saved, it does not exempt you. Now, unfortunately, I've met people and I've even led people to Christ who are under the impression that if they got saved, all of their problems would go away. By the way, if you get saved to see your problems go away, are you truly saved <laughs> if that's your reason? Are you truly putting your faith and trust in Christ or are you putting your faith and trust in the fact that, oh, my life's going to be better? Okay. Now, does your life get better when you're saved? Yes, it does. But for a different reason, not because there's less trials, but because you know how to deal with those trials in a proper way. God gives you the strength to deal with those things. But the trials of life are not an elective, okay? They're a required course in the, in the, in the school of life. And we will face trials, but not only will we face trials, but those trials will be wide and they will be various. The word diverse that you saw there, diverse temptations, it means of various sorts. Another definition means multicolored, multifaceted. If you look back at your life and you see the trials you've been through, you could say, yes, it's been a multicolored type of trial. It's been different. You never know what's going to come. All sorts of various things. And notice how he says here, when you fall into diverse temptations, to me, that's a perfect way of looking at it. He calls it fall into. Here, here's why this is a great way to look at it. Because the thing is, trials, uh, the, the trials that he's talking about are not trials that we put ourselves into. So I want to distinct, distinguish those two. You understand, as well as I do, that there are some trials of life that you've put yourself into, right? You make an unwise financial decision. Trial, <laughs> okay? Well, who's, who, whose fault is that? unwise financial decision. You understand what I'm saying, right? Uh, you sin. You, you fall into some sort of sin and you sin against a, a brother or sister in Christ or you sin against somebody and it damages that relationship. Okay, that's a trial that came as a result of a decision that you made. What he's talking about here is that when you fall into, meaning you, it's like stepping into a hole. You're just going along on the path of life and you're walking along and there's a big hole in the ground and you step into it. That's what he's talking about, trials that just come along in life. They're not things that are specific because of our decisions, but they're things that just sort of come along. It's like an unexpected accident on the highway. Now, going out to the men's retreat, uh, there was, I think, uh, 
Brother Towns over in North Van, he told me as he was on, out, on the way out there, there was three accidents on the way out. Now, thankfully, we missed it because we left a bit early. But there was three accidents on the highway. So what happens when there's an unexpected accident? I'm sure you've all done this. You plan it. Okay, I'm going to go to Langley. For whatever reason, I'm going to Abbotsford. It's going to take me 45 minutes. And there's an accident. It's going to take me an hour and a half, right? <laughs> it's going to take me, take me an extra 20 minutes. Well, when there's unexpected accidents, it doesn't stop you necessarily from going. Unless you have like zero patience, maybe you're like, that's it, I'm off the highway, I'm going back home. It could be. I've done that before. But for the most part, if there's an accident, all it does is it slows us down, right? It uh, maybe causes us to redirect a little bit. But the point is, is that we still get back to the point eventually where we're going in the direction and we're headed towards where we were headed. But there's some things that come along in the way and, and they slow us down. They maybe change things a little bit, make us redirect. But it doesn't stop us from moving forward. The kind of trials that he's talking about are trials that affect things like our health. Trials that come along that affect our family that we, are unexpected, that we weren't expecting. Trials with friendships or with our career, finances like I've mentioned, or maybe even our, the possessions that we have, an accident or, or something comes along. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine uh, this week and uh, his kitchen got flooded. Guess what? That's a trial. You know, it affected his possessions. They have to replace their floors and different things, uh, different things that, that were damaged in the flood. Uh, not the original flood, but the flood there at his house. And, uh, and, and so these things come along in our life, and sometimes it's multiple areas at the same time. I've had trials in my family personally that were not only personal trials, but they were financial trials. Sometimes the financial trial calls a, a family trial. It depends on what it is. And so there's multiple things, but regardless of what the trials are, James and God is more concerned about how we respond to the trials. It's not so much about what they are. He's not going to give us a, okay, if you go through financial trouble, do exactly this. Now, there are other scriptures that deal with it, but James is giving us an overriding theme of how we are to approach trials, and the way that we are to respond is with joy. Say it with me. Joy. Say it again. Joy. Spell it with me. J-O-Y. Spell it backwards. Y-O-J. What is it? Yodge. Now, come on. You got to help me out here. <laughs> I, Simon didn't say, right? Joy. Joy, joy, joy. I just want you to get that. Joy, joy, joy down in your heart. Get that. Joy. When it comes to the trials, the very things, the things that we fall into, those unexpected circumstances, we are to face it with joy. So this is what makes it radical, right? This is what makes it radical to us because it is not our natural response, naturally inside we are not prone to responding with joy when our child has a sickness and we have to take him to the hospital Andy went through that this week he wasn't like text me like pastor I'm so happy I'm so joyful you know <laughs> Noah's in the hospital exclamation point exclamation point smiley face you know laughing cry eyes right like this is so great that's that's not our natural response is it our natural response by the way that's a little bit of a weird response we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute it's not joy over hurt but our natural response is, not, response is not to have joy because we want to avoid. We want to escape trials. Instead of with joy, we often face it with fear, anxiety, or grief, or self-pity, or whatever. But James emphasizes, count it all joy. That is a command from God that we are to look at our trials with the, uh, and God is giving it to us as an imperative, not a suggestion, that when we have trials in our life, we are to rejoice now right now you're thinking how am i supposed to rejoice in trials <laughs> i can't maybe you're thinking that right now i can't rejoice in trials the truth is you can't within you you cannot rejoice in trials but 
God is not asking us to face trials alone, is he? He's asking us to face our trials with him. This command here is given to those who know Jesus Christ as their savior. Because only Christians, and I say this pretty strongly, only Christians are qualified to count it all joy when the trials come. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, in verse number 14, is an interesting verse that applies in a lot of different situations. But here I believe particularly where it says, but the natural man, that's the unsaved person, the, un- the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. See, before someone can see the joys in trials, I believe that a person must confess their sins, first of all, to a holy God. Before you can see joy in a difficult circumstance, you must be born again. You must receive his forgiveness. You must trust in his uh, sacrifice for you on the cross to make an atonement for your sins. And the thing is this, church, when you have been saved from the penalty of your sin, guess what? You can face any trial that comes your way. When you've been saved, listen, thank you, Christian. Uh, That's a good thing to say amen to, okay? Because when you've been saved from the penalty of your sin, you can face any trial that may come your way. This does not mean that we sorrow and we laugh like a crazy person when a difficulty comes our way, you know? (laughs) Yes! Or like Andy texted me. He didn't actually text me, but you know, that kind of like, yes, I'm so happy, I'm so happy. If you do that, something is wrong with you, okay? I really, I believe that as well. I'm not saying your trials are joyful experiences, but you can count it all joy. So let's talk about that for a minute. What does that actually mean? The word count here, where he says count it all joy, the word count means to carefully and to deliberately consider something. You might say ponder something. Ponder joy. Consider it joy. It's a logical conclusion, not an emotional response. Emotional responses get us in trouble a lot, don't they? You ever made an emotional response and just ruined the situation based out of emotion? Maybe not even fully understanding what was going on? That's the idea here, that we are to count it all joy, meaning we are to come to a logical conclusion. We're to consider our trials to be an occasion for joy even when we don't feel joyful. This doesn't mean that we disregard the pain. It doesn't mean that we disregard the grief or the anger or the fear that comes with trials. What it simply means is this. We respond to trials with a deep sense of understanding that God is still in control. And when we do that, we can live a life with a purity of joy, leaving us, and and this may sound uh, maybe sounds strange to you, but it leaves you untouched by the onslaught of trials that come your way. It's a deep set of, of understanding. It's a purity of joy. And here's why. It's because joy is a choice. Joy is a choice. Joy is, we've talked about happiness in the same way. Happiness is not just based on our circumstances. Happiness is something that comes to us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. And joy is the same way. And as Christians, we have the ability to choose joy, to choose joy in our lives. Because when we understand what God is doing in us through trials, we then can have a life and we can count our circumstances. We can look at them and we can understand them in a different way. Right now, you might be saying, what are you talking about? I'll explain it in point number two. So let's look at point number two. So he talks about our response to trials. So our response to trials is joy. Okay, well, how do we do that? Well, Or why do we do that? The reason we do it is because God has a purpose for our trials. 
So today's message is sort of a, a several different points that we'll kind of collect in, and at the end, it'll make a case for what we're doing today. But God's, uh, God's purpose for trials. Look at verse number two through verse number four. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. We've already talked about that. But then look what it says in verse number three. Knowing this. So he's giving us the answer for how we can count it all joy. Here's something that we know. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh, what's that word? Patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Some key phrases here. Knowing this, wanting nothing. We're going to connect those dots here in just a minute. The answer to rejoicing in our trials is seen in verse number three. Here's the answer. The trying of our faith, those trials that we have that challenge us, will work itself out in patience. We don't count the trials that we see because of, or we don't count them for joy because of what we feel, because of what we think, or because of what we see, but we can count our trials all joy because of what we know, because of what we know. It's not because uh, we can see it turning out a certain way. It's not because we feel a certain way. We can have joy in our trials because of what we know. This is how it's possible for a Christian to rejoice in suffering. It's how it's possible for a Christian to sing as we weep. It's possible for us as believers to trust God in the darkness. This is what makes it possible for us to love those that hate us and bless those that curse us, as Scripture tells us. It's an understanding about God and who He is. Somebody once said this, a Christian isn't necessarily any nicer than anyone else, just better informed. I thought that was a great thought. It's not that we are somehow super people somehow. It's just that we have a knowledge that passes understanding. We have an understanding about God based off of his spirit that indwells us and the knowledge of the word of God that allows us to approach life in a completely and totally different way. We count it all joy because of what we know. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28 says, and we, what's that word there? No. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I heard about a guy, I read about a guy who um, would have what he called a counted all joy party. It's kind of weird, I know, but he would do that. And he wouldn't really tell anybody what he was doing. He, it was kind of a personal thing for him. And he'd say, I have a counted all joy party. And he'd invite people over and people, they'd come over and they'd be like, oh, like, what's the occasion? You know, uh, what, what, you know, why are you serving us steaks? And you know, why are we having such a good time? Is it your anniversary? No, it's not my anniversary. Oh, did you get a, did you get a promotion at work? You know, did you get a raise? Like, what's going on? Why are you having this party? And he'd say, no. He said, no. He said, this is a, and, he, and this is what he said. He said, I had a, this is what I call a counted all joy party. And he says, the reason that I'm having this party is because I'm having a hard time right now. That's what he said. I'm having a hard time right now. I'm going through a rough time right now. He said, but I'm having this party to celebrate what God is going to do at the end of all this. What a great way to look at our trials. <laughs> there better be some more parties in this church, okay? <laughs> That's what he said. I thought it was a great, what a great story. He said, I'm having this party to celebrate because I know God has something good planned for me at the end of all this, what I'm struggling in right now. James encourages us to rejoice because we know, and we can rejoice in our trial, that God is using that season. God is using that trial that we're facing to try our faith. He's trying to put us in a position as believers where we say, why God? <laughs> why now? 
Why me? Uh, Why am I facing this? What are you trying to teach me? In other words, God's purpose for the trials that we face is to test our faith, to purify our focus, and to purify our motives as believers. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 6 through 7 talks about this. It says, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So look at that. Manifold is the same idea, multiple. He says here in the verse, he says, you greatly rejoice, even though you're rejoicing now for a season, but if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, meaning you're rejoicing even in those varying trials that come along. Why? Verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The process of testing our faith is done through the fires of trial. Remember, we're learning something here. We want to know this. It helps us to look at life in a different way. The, the testing of our faith is done through the fires of trial. Just like a precious metal is purified through it being heated up and the impurities that float to the top and they skim it away in gold or silver, other precious metals, they, they heat it up by fire. They remove the impurities so that it's pure as it should be. It's complete as it should be. And that's what happens with us is God uh, uses those trials that we fall into that are just part of life, things that come along Maybe, maybe because of the fall, maybe because of sin, but these trials that come along that we find ourselves in, God uses those to prove and purify our faith. In other words, to make your faith a little more useful, a little more useful. Uh, this week at the men's retreat, uh, a friend of mine who is there from uh, Greater Vancouver, his name's Chris, and he's a uh, general manager, or he runs the uh, Subaru dealership over in North Vancouver. And so he always has like really nice cars, you know, because that's what he does. He gets them for free. He can just drive whatever he wants. And so to the men's retreat, he drove a, su- a brand new 2019 Subaru WRX STI. To some of you, that means nothing. To me, it meant something. <laughs> to Blair, it meant something. <laughs> to other people who know cars a little bit, uh, it's, it's a very nice car. I mean, you can hear it coming from a little ways away. And I like that. And so uh, I had to make a, a, a quick little errand uh, away from the camp one afternoon or on Friday afternoon. And so, um, and so somebody said to me, hey, ask Chris if you can take his car. Doesn't hurt to ask. What was he going to say? No. I mean, probably, but that's okay. If he says no, that's fine. I'll, I'll, t- I'll take my truck. I said, Chris, man, can I, drive your, uh, can I drive your car? I got to run a little errand up the highway, you know? And he, and he says, uh, yeah, sure, no problem. And he throws me the keys. And so I ran, no, I ran, I went to the car and I got in it and it's a stick shift and everything and it's got Recaro racing seats and it's lowered and I mean, this is, this is, oh, and you start it up, I mean, it's really, I should have put a picture up here so you can see, I mean, it's a very nice car. And so, uh, and so I hadn't driven stick shift for a while, you know, so no, I, I'm just joking. I drove it so nicely and carefully, but as soon as I hit that highway, I got to be honest with you, I did kind of let it out a little bit. You know what that means, right? <laughs> I means, okay, I, I obeyed the law. Actually, I took with me my friend who's an RCMP officer. I took him with me in the car. And I made sure he had his badge just in case anything happened. You know, he, he could just be like, it's okay. We're on government business. I don't know. Uh, but he did that. Now, now you say, why are you telling us this story? Well, when I tested that vehicle, I tried it out. I tested it out to see what it could do. And, I, and often when you go and you do a test drive, why do you do a test drive when you're buying a vehicle or you go to an auto show or you go and look at it? Because you want to test it to see if it'll suit your needs, right? 
You want to see if it'll be beneficial to you. Now, yes, a Subaru WRX STI would be very useful to me. I could get to church like that, you know, <laughs> instead of one minute, take me 30 seconds. I could drive fast everywhere I needed to go. You understand what I'm saying. We test things out to, to see its usefulness for us that it fits the need. And that's the same way with us in our lives. The trials that come our way, they test us. It proves us to show our usefulness, <coughs> excuse me, our usefulness for God. Yet at the same time, I want you to get something. At the same time that we're facing a trial, God is in control, remember? And God's got his hand over the stop button <laughs> because he won't allow you to be tested above what you're able to handle. And so while you're going through a trial that's developing your faith, God is still totally in control of the situation that's happening. But he, we see here in this verse that the test of our faith works something in us, and what it produces in us is patience. It produces patience. Now, patience, you look at it in different ways, of course. We apply it in different ways. In this context of trying out our faith, patient means endurance. It means perseverance. It means continuing on. See, patience in trials is not just us resigning ourselves to a situation and being like, well, I guess this is my life. <laughs> you, know, you ever done that? Well, eh, this is as good as it's going to get, you know. This, it's not just resigning ourselves to a situation, but it's persevering through the trial, persevering through the struggle. Like the last couple of hours on a difficult hike or that last, uh, that last hour of work after a 12-hour day. You're just going to persevere. We're going to get through this. That last, you know, five minutes of a basketball game or of a, a game where you've been playing your hardest and there's just a bit left to go and you've got to work through it. In the Christian life, God would, wants us to be perseverant, uh, people who persevere. He wants us to be long-distance runners instead of sprinters. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number one, it tells us, wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. That's not a hundred yard dash. That's a marathon. Other times the apostle Paul talks about running a race. And in those days in Rome, the marathon was the premier race. That's what everybody trained to do. That's what it was. And so he's talking about the idea of a distance runner where you have a um, you have perseverance. You can continue on. The truth about Christianity, though, is that many people have kind of a sprinter's mindset when it comes to the Christian life. And they're like, I got saved. And it's like, boom, you know, and they're, and they're just sprinting ahead of everybody else. But then a trial comes, right? And they kind of fall off to the side. And too often we have a, uh, th there's a phrase called a cut and run mentality. Maybe you've heard that before. But it's the idea that like, we end our relationships when we are disappointed. So, so uh, a difficulty comes and we're like, all right, that, that relationship's over. Uh, we quit our jobs as soon as it doesn't go the way that we want it to go. Uh, we divorce our spouse when we're unsatisfied, the moment it comes along. <coughs> we uh, leave our church when we're offended <laughs> rather than working through it. Uh, we change cities when we're unhappy. And so we move out, you know, and we're, and we're gone. Listen, Christians need to be people of perseverance. Proverbs illustrates this idea where it says that the wicked flee when no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. That's the idea of we stand in our place. Righteous people live with patience, with perseverance. But I want you to know that patience, the perseverance, is not the end of what God is talking about. Look back at the verse there in verse number four. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, verse four, but let patience then. So um, <coughs> you've had these trials, 
you've had the trying of your faith. It's working patience, but let patience have her perfect work that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. Perfect and entire wanting nothing. See, God tests our faith to develop endurance, but his ultimate goal for us is that we would grow through that situation, that we would mature. The word perfect here means completeness. Sometimes you see the word perfect in the Bible and you're like, well, I can't do that, (laughs) you know. But what it means in scripture is the idea of a completeness to you, maturity, meaning you are becoming who God desires you to be as a Christian. Remember, uh, remember, God wants us to be molded into the image of his son, right? He wants us to be uh, conformed to his image. He wants us to grow into something. God has a path for all of us of maturity that he wants us to be at. Now, many people fall off along the way. But the idea is that we are growing through everything that takes place. And so he's telling us that we need to grow and mature. That's what the trying of our faith does for us. And just like in life, Maturity does not come by reading a book about maturity. 101 ways to be mature <laughs> as a young person. It sounds like a good book. Well, listen, that's not going to make you mature, is it? Uh, it? It doesn't come, you don't listen to one sermon and you're like, I'm totally spiritually mature now. I will make all of the right decisions because I heard that message and it changed everything for me. No, it doesn't come by praying, Lord, help me to be mature. Help me to do the right thing, Lord. What matures us in life? Going through things, right? Experiences. That's what separates me from Maximus. That's what separates my ability to make a decision for our family against his ability to make a decision for our family, right? By the way, we don't let him make decisions for our family, typically. He knows that, you know. I'm not like, well, Max, what should I do here, <laughs> you know? Uh, this is our, why? Because I've been through some things. I have experience. I have maturity in some things, right? The result of going through difficulties in life as we trust God and we obey him and we grow, the result is patience, perseverance, and the result is ultimately maturity in the faith. When we do that, when we submit to God's word, it comes down to the end of the verse there where it says that we are wanting nothing. Meaning there's nothing left in our lives that we need when we're going through trials because we've reached that level of maturity, of patience. Now think about that for a moment. To me, that's a very profound statement. A very profound statement. He's saying here that facing trials and the testing of our faith will be profitable to us. It will perfect us. It will will mature us when we entrust ourselves to the Lord. What it tells us is that God will use negative experiences to bring about a positive result by working in us spiritual maturity, spiritual endurance of our faith. Now, isn't that interesting? That's how we can say, like we read in Proverbs 8, or uh, in Romans 8, 28, all things work together for our good. Even if it's a bad situation, God is doing something positive uh, in us through a negative situation. And that comes through this process of allowing the trials as it builds patience, as it builds endurance in us, it then matures us to the point where we're wanting nothing. Now, you might be saying today, well, I'm not at that point yet. (laughs) I want a lot. <laughs> I, I, have, I have things that I still need to grow in. And guess what? Understanding that and realizing that in your life is a great place to be. By the way, none of us have, are all there. None of us have gotten to that perfect part of maturity. But I will tell you this. If you go through a trial with joy and you go through a trial and you can count it as a positive thing because God is teaching you something in it, it'll help you to face those things later on in life. I, I've had people say this to me before when they're facing a trial. I went through that before and it did not go well. 
Maybe you thought that before. You know, I had some financial problems five years ago, and it just did not go well. And so maybe they're facing a financial issue now, and they're like, I really don't want to go back there. And it, and it creates a bit of desperation, you know? It creates like this panic, and there's this great fear. Now, you compare that to a situation that you did go through well, and you saw God work, and God gave you wisdom, and God matured you through it. Guess what? It's not that difficult to face that challenge anymore, is it? You're able to persevere through it. You're able to see the end of it because you know what God did in your life before. And this is how we can face trials joyfully because we know that God is trying to do something in us. And ultimately, God is going to mold us. He's going to mature us, and it will bring glory to God. So here's the takeaway for today's message. I can count it all joy because God is working in me. I can count it all joy because God is working in me. If you look at your situation right now and you really step back for a minute and you say, God is trying to teach me something in this. God, what, what is it, God? You know, why are you allowing me to go through this? Not why me, but why are you allowing me to walk through this? If you approach those trials in that way, it's amazing what God can teach you. And when God teaches you, you are maturing in your faith. You learn so much more through the trials of life than the good times of life. Isn't that true? Man, God has taught me so much through the, the down times, through those difficult times. Even recently with some of the things that have been going on in our family, one of the things that Jeanette and I have said over and over again, I wonder what God is trying to show us through this. <laughs> I wonder how God is trying to mature us through this. How is God preparing us? What is he teaching us? And I promise you right now, if you take whatever it is you're facing, whether it's relational, financial, uh, personal, whatever you may be going through, if you would look at it with these eyes and just say, God, what are you trying to teach me? It'll completely change your perspective. Completely change your perspective. God, what am I supposed to learn through this trial right now? It'll take you one step closer to maturity. And the mature Christian life is what brings glory to God. It also enables you to help other people, right? What is the first thing we do when we go through a trial? Who else has gone through this that can give me some advice, <laughs> right? Or who, who else has handled this in a good way that I can go to for advice? Listen, God wants you to be that person for someone else. We can't just live through life, you know, uh, just struggling, struggling, and I don't know how to do this, and, I, and always looking. God wants us to mature and develop and to grow into that person who can give advice and can help other people. And that's a real blessing to be able to do that when that comes. But whatever you're facing right now in your life, would you count it all joy? Would you allow the Lord to teach you endurance through it and patience through it and bring you one step closer to maturity? That is what brings glory to God. We hope today's message was an encouragement in your relationship with Christ. To stay connected with us, you can like us on Facebook or give us a follow on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will uniquely bless and grow you as you pursue His will.